Recently, I was having dinner with a friend, and uh, they shared this quite miraculous thing that God had done in their life. God had healed them. And like all things of this nature, there's a lot more to the story, but the bottom line is that God quite unmistakably moved. And in this case, I have little doubt that it was God's blessed intervention in my friend's life. But if I'm brutally honest, I never really quite know what to think or even how to feel when someone says that phrase, God healed me. You know, the natural reaction is, of course, hallelujah, to celebrate and rejoice. But there's this little voice in the back of my head. It's not that I don't think God can heal. I know he heals. He does heal. I've seen it with my own eyes. It probably has more to do with um, that claim when someone shares it and it just seems a little contrived. And maybe that, maybe that just means that I'm cynical or a person of very little faith. I don't know. Um, but most likely, it, I mean, the discomfort that I have with that, I know it comes from the question, like, why does God choose to heal some and in some situations and not others? And frankly, how God heals is an even bigger mystery to me. I'm of the opinion that God has provided us with incredible doctors, nurses, medical staff and facilities. Um, naturally, this can make us skeptical too. You know, did God heal you or did you just have a really good doctor? And maybe it's not our place to tell God how he heals us because he does absolutely work through the people and the technology of modern medicine, hallelujah. It just doesn't quite look like it does in the Gospels. Should it? There are many Christians who won't seek out medical attention. And I want you to know, I am not one of those people, okay? Sign me up, send me the doctor, please. Uh, I will happily pray that God uh, uses their talents and abilities to help me. But, but why would someone do that? Why would someone refuse medical attention? Usually it has to do with them waiting on God to physically heal them. Just six months ago, I was with a, a group of pastors and some of their families, and one of them was asking the group for prayer. And they shared that they were waiting for God to heal them. They had a non-life-threatening ailment, but it, but it was definitely, you know, it wasn't just like a nuisance thing, like it impacted their day-to-day -day life. And they felt like God had asked them to wait and for God to actually do it himself. And I, you know, I was like, well, who am I to say anything different? And it was a crowd of people. I didn't really know anybody, so I kept my mouth shut. But I just kept thinking of some of the tragic misunderstandings that I've heard throughout my life that relate to this. And it raises, a, it raises this question in my mind, you know, like, are you waiting for God to heal you or... Are you dictating to God how he heals you? There's a big difference. Who am I to tell God how or even when he can heal? Well, believe me, I know that, you know, in the first minute of this message, you're thinking, man, Dan, you got some big questions to, to wrap up here by the end, and I'm not sure that I'm going to answer all those questions. But the bottom line is this, Jesus is known as the great physician for a reason. 
It's because he heals. He healed in the past in the Gospels that we, we re- read about. He heals us now spiritually, emotionally, physically. And as skeptical as you and I may feel when someone says, God healed me, um, Jesus' healing ministry is a taste of how God is beginning to renew us and his creation. It's also something that his followers are meant to carry on. So are you? Am I? I've seen God heal. No other explanation at all. In fact, twice during my career as, past, as a pastor, so you know, this is like over 20 years, I, I've only had it happen twice, where someone's come to me and said, hey, you know, a week ago or a month ago or whatever, you prayed for me and God moved. He, he healed. And that is as much for me to hear because you know, there are hundreds of prayers and people that I've prayed for. If, if, if there was any, if I'm like, oh, well, ha, yes, I prayed for you and you, God heard me. Uh, God is very quickly to remind me like, eh, hold on, this is not about you. But unmistakably, like unbelievable, especially one of them, it was just crazy. God moved and healed. And that man, it was a friend of mine, who was not given to talk to people or to say about how, talk about how God was present in his life. I mean, he was like a, you could not shut him up. He just kept telling random strangers how God had healed him. And I kept thinking, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's just a testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness. But I am acutely aware, uh, even with my own sister who passed away seven years ago, you know, you can pray and pray and pray and pray, and some God, sometimes God doesn't answer that prayer. Why? Well, before we consider how and why God heals, let's start with the healing ministry of Jesus himself, who asks all of us, do you want to get well? We started a new sermon series just last week. It's called The Questions Jesus Asks. We always associate Jesus with the stuff that he said. You know, he said this. He was a great teacher. You think of the, the Sermon on the Mount or other teachings of Jesus, and people look at those, whether they're a Christian or not, and they say, wow, that is just impressive stuff on being human and living faith. But Jesus wasn't just all talk. He was far from it. When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus is often in conversation with those around him. And at the heart of those interactions, I mean, it's really easy to miss, but at a lot, in the middle of a lot of those interactions, there are questions that Jesus poses. They're often poignant, often profound, and they make all the difference for us as we encounter Jesus and try to follow him. So for the next six weeks, we're going to explore different questions Jesus asked. Today, we're going to look at the question that appears in all four Gospels in a similar way, it's this one. Do you want to get well? So our reading for today comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. This is known as the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And for our purposes today, I want you to try something different. I mean, I know you can read it on the screen, but I want you to try and just, maybe just listen. Close your eyes, engage your imagination, try to put yourself in the story, engage your senses. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you smelling? I don't know, maybe what are you tasting? What, what's happening? Try and put yourself in this story. 
They came to Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So there's the question. What do you want me to do for you? It sounds very similar to the question we talked about last week when Jesus was asking his first disciples, you know, why they were following him. You know, who, what are you seeking? What do you want? But the context here, entirely different. And even though this is extremely similar question, maybe Jesus is trying to tell us something. That he wants all of us to clarify why we seek him. There are several examples that relate to healing. As I mentioned, all four Gospels have this question appearing in different forms and variations. The, the one that we just read here, that, this is repeated in all three synoptic Gospels. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so that's significant when you see something repeated in all three of them. You're like, wow, this is, I mean, it, it made all three. That's not the case with, with everything. Uh, then there's, and it's the same question, what do you want me to do for you? Then there's, a, there's the faith of the centurion. This is something that occurs in Matthew chapter 8. He comes to Jesus and tells Jesus that his servant is really ill. And Jesus says to this Roman soldier, well, shall I come and heal him? And then there's also in John chapter 5, there's, I love this episode, it's, it's the story of a paralyzed man. And so he's from childhood, he hasn't been able to walk, and every day he sits next to this pool, which has uh, reported to have, or reputed to have healing properties. And as Jesus is walking by, he looks down at him and he says, do you want to get well? In every circumstance, Jesus heals. In every circumstance, it's obvious that the person wants or needs healing. So why ask the question? Maybe Jesus is aware of more than just the obvious physical ailments that need healing. I don't know. Maybe Jesus um, knows what many of us have learned, that we might think we know what's best for another person, but unless they choose it, it's usually good not to force it upon them. Or maybe my understanding of faith really needs to shift or grow, or maybe both. But why is it so hard for us to believe that this happened or actually happens? Healing is an unmistakable sign of God's presence, the Holy Spirit. And yet it, it just feels too good to be true. Or we assume that there's another explanation for it other than God. So is that why Jesus says to Bartimaeus at the end, your faith has healed you? Well, looking into this passage, here Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. And, and that is 18 miles away. It's also 
uphill pretty significantly. And that route in those days was very mountainous. It was very remote. It was pretty sketchy and unsafe. Uh, there were bandits and lots of things that could happen to you on the way from Jer uh, Jericho to Jerusalem. And so um, thousands of travelers would travel that, especially during the festival times. Um, and there was kind of some safety in numbers there. But no one would be surprised to encounter a few beggars outside the city gates. And here's one, Bartimaeus, sitting right next to the road. And when I was a kid, we used to sing this song at summer camp, and it had these words in it. We, it, we would say, blind man sat by the side of the road. That was, that was one of the, and it was a song about Bartimaeus being healed. And it, it, it had the, the chorus always, though, ended with him finding his way home which was like this metaphor. It wasn't just about the sight being restored. It was about him finding salvation in Jesus. And there's a complete transformation for Bartimaeus in this passage. He starts sitting literally next to the road, and it ends with him actually following Jesus on the road. So think about the difference there. He goes from being a dependent, like just whatever people gave him, that's the only way he probably made money. Dependent on others, uh, disabled in sight, just on the side of the road, and he ends as an active, restored participant following Jesus' way. It's an incredible vision of healing, newfound life. So obviously Bartimaeus has heard of Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth, who's that? Well, he's sitting there next to the road. People must talk, and he... Probably, I mean, extremely likely that he had heard of Jesus and knew that he could heal. And so he starts shouting, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, why else would he start saying that unless he knew that Jesus could help him? Well, even though people tell him to shut up, he just keeps at it, shameless. And his persistence pays off. Jesus hears him, notices him. Back in the day, uh, I had a friend of mine, and, and I went to camp as a kid, and then as an adult, I worked at camp. And so one of my coworkers, he would give a talk on this passage to, uh, to the campers every week. And he would, he would get to this part, and he would shout, Son of David, have mercy on me! And he would do it over and over again until the most hardened middle schooler would look embarrassed. And that was his point. He was just like, oh, that's kind of awkward and uncomfortable. You wanted to tell him to shut up and stop. Um, and, and that was his whole point. And I got to tell you, the part of this story that makes me probably the most uncomfortable, um, if I were to imagine myself in the story especially, is, is when people are so obviously annoyed with Bartimaeus, right? Shut up. Be quiet, says they rebuked him. That's a very, like, in your face, stop. You're embarrassing the rest of us. And even though it feels good to be noticed, I often, as a person, make a habit of trying to fly under the radar. And I, this drives me nuts with my children. I'm always like, be more assertive. Like, be confident. Get, put yourself out there. And I'm like, well, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? <laughs> 
Uh, I, I don't really like being noticed, especially if I'm in need. It's really, really hard for me to ask anyone for help. I like being independent. Um, and if I ever thought that I was being a burden, I'd be embarrassed. I'd be ashamed. I was the kid who would get hurt and hide under the table. Okay? I, I didn't want you to see me cry. I, I didn't. I'll suffer on my own. It's funny because one of my kids is the same way. I don't know where she got that from. Um, <laughs> I just outed her too. But there's a layer of shame with that. And that's meant to be present in this story. Uh, for Bartimaeus and for those around him, they're, they're ashamed. And people would have assumed that Bartimaeus' blindness was the result. I mean, it was his own fault. That, that's, your, that's your sin or your family's sin. I mean, absolutely. And this shame is brought out into the open when they start to tell him to shut up. I mean, their whole reaction is telling. And the attitude of others so often carries so much weight in our lives, doesn't it? But it's a really poor guide for us. People get, I get easily annoyed. And human beings have this terrible habit of making disease and injury the fault of the person that's suffering from it. I don't know why we do, we just do that. That is a human being thing from now, <laughs> at least back to the time of Jesus, and I'm sure before then. You know, this is your fault. You didn't take care of yourself. Maybe it's the family gene pool in a very ugly way. Hmm, too bad for you. Or perhaps it's your sin, and God is judging you. And this is what we think about ourselves, about others. It's how shame gets in our head. It makes us believe stuff that just isn't true. Shame is always about inadequacy, some inadequacy that we feel. And on a very basic level, it has to do with a fear that I am not quite enough. I'm just not quite up to the task. And unfortunately, many of us have had important people in our lives tell us that, right? Yeah, you just don't have what it takes. Ah, you're kind of a failure over and over again. Uh, you know, and these, 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 that replays in our head that we're such a disappointment to someone that we didn't want to disappoint. Could be an experience, a setback, a failure that's just reinforced that. And it becomes its own self, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You see it over and over and over and over again. Well, the effect on many of us is to make us hide. We want to hide from others. We want to hide from ourselves. We want to hide from loved ones. Uh, we hold back because we don't want to just show everyone how inept we are over and over again. But it's just a lie, a lie straight from the pit of hell. The author of Hebrews uh, is writing to encourage Christians. And in uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the writer uh, says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And this is the part. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Um, the part that I like 
that relates to what I'm talking here with shame has to do with where it talks about Jesus enduring the cross for us. And that phrase, scorning, it's shame. You know, scorning something, I mean, shame is this despising of someone or some part of ourselves. So is scorning. So we're going to scorn the scorning. That's what Jesus did. And it means that he despised it and held that shame and contempt. He wasn't going to let what other people thought of dying on a cross stop him from dying for us. When we look at Christ to help us endure this life, there's, a, there's something here that I think helps us. You know, whenever we hear those voices or whenever we're reminded of our total failure or whatever it may be, we can call it out, stiff arm it, say, no, I'm not going to listen to that voice anymore. Instead, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. And here's what Jesus thinks of me. Even though he knew I was a complete train wreck and broken failure, he still died up, he still climbed up on a cross and gave his life for me. I used to have a seminary professor that would say often, guess what? Every time you screw up, and you will, but every time you realize it or remember it or find out some new awful thing about yourself, Jesus doesn't climb back up on the cross and die for you all over again. He did it once for all, period. That is the grace and mercy of Jesus. That is how God feels about me and you and us. So every time you have that replay or that voice or whatever, you scorn it like I'm not going to listen to that and I'm going to tell myself a different story instead. It's that story. Or it's a recollection of, the, of, the, of something else rather than just letting that replay over and over and over again in your head. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Scorn the shame. Tell yourself a different story. So, so, so important in a way that Jesus can help us overcome this. Bartimaeus is shameless. He's not going to let the disapproval of others keep him from Jesus, who he believes is his best hope for restoration. Son of David, have mercy on me. Would you have the courage to shout that? Would you have the courage to pray that? This week I talked to my friend uh, from camp, and it's been a really long time since we both worked there. And I, I was remembering this, and so I'm texting him like, hey, didn't you do this? To, oh, yeah, I used to shout at the kids. We were kind of laughing on text, you know, and recalling happy, happy times. And uh, he's also a pastor just like me, and I told him, it impresses me that Bartimaeus would just, wouldn't let shame keep him from Jesus and this healing that he hopes he could provide. And my friend texts back this. He says, he's like, man, that is so true especially considering ancient culture may have equated his disability with his sin or his family's sin. And then he says, the people who sit in my church look perfect on the outside until I read their 
prayer cards and requests that they turn in week after week. And then I realize they all have stuff like me. I wish it was more acceptable in church to fall on your knees and simply say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. And sometimes that's the only prayer we can muster. Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what happens next in this story is probably the most shocking thing to Bartimaeus. Verse 49, Jesus stopped. Huge crowd. You know, probably hundreds of people. Crazy guy on the edge of the road shouting at Jesus. Jesus stops. He hears him and stops. No one is too insignificant for Jesus. No one is, there is no inconvenience big enough for Jesus. He notices, he stops, he cares. Over and over again, when you read the Gospels, you see this in Jesus. He'll stop and he takes this detour. He's on his way somewhere and he's, he's, got, he's making progress towards his goal or this destination and then he gets diverted. Usually it says he has compassion. He alters his plan. That's a little more than convicting for me because I'm so task-focused, right? Let's get this done. We've only got a certain amount of time to do it. I don't want to be interrupted, but not Jesus. Jesus calls to him and says, you know, come on over. Bartimaeus runs and Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, I want to see. So obvious, right? Still, Jesus asks. He's not condescending in the way that he asked this to Bartimaeus. I think it's empowering. You know, rather than jump to conclusion, Jesus allows him to verbalize his longing. How does mercy look to you, Bartimaeus? Rabbi, I want to see. And the huge irony here, probably the reason why it appears in the gospel at this moment, is because this sight-disabled, um, isolated man is the only one among a huge crowd of perfectly able-bodied people who has the vision to see Jesus for who he is. I think that's why this is in the gospel right at that moment, is the blind guy sees Jesus. And uh, he's the son of David. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He's God in the flesh. He's the, the person who the prophet Isaiah says he's going to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. He's going to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. And so that question, what do you want me to do for you? might be the most important question God could ever ask us still today. According to a Bible scholar named D.E. Garland, he says, not only the most important question, but the one which we most frequently give the wrong answer. I'd never noticed this until this week, that the part immediately preceding the, you know, the blind Bartimaeus here he asked this question, what do you want from me, to his disciples, James and John. And they respond by saying, 
well, let us sit at your right hand and your left hand. You know, they're, they're after the power and influence that they think is going to come when Jesus becomes the king. Wrong answer. Bartimaeus, immediately following, what do you want from me? I want to see. Jesus heals him. Um, you know, as much as this episode is about healing, it's really about seeing Jesus for who he is. He's the one who can bring us resurrection life so that we can dwell with God forever. So what about me? How do I see Jesus? Is he just my ticket to success? Is he a genie in the bottle who can grant all of my wishes? Or is he Emmanuel, God with us? And furthermore, am I aware of my blind spots and of what ails me? Could I verbalize what I actually want from God? Do I have the courage to listen and wait for his answer? Am I willing to push my pride and my pain aside, to fall on my knees and just ask Jesus, beg Jesus for mercy? When I started working on this message Monday, I had no idea where I was going to go with it. And I know some of you are thinking now, like he still has no idea where he's going to go with this, right? Um, I thought it was about healing. And then I was like, hmm, maybe not. I'm not so sure. I mean, obviously it's about healing, but I think there's something more there. And then the week happened, and I found myself really uncomfortably confronted with the reality of chronic illness and of long-term disability. And in a very real way, it made me recall um, some of my, my sister's struggles. She had a brain tumor. It, you know, she it's the grim reaper of cancers, as many of them are. And she lived 14, 16 months. It felt like such an injustice. What a waste. She was 46, so I'm a couple years older than her when she passed away. And as time has gone on, it's, it's the pain and the suffering. Like, man, God, why did she have to go through that? And once, just a, a couple months before she passed away, um, she, uh, she was completely immobilized at this time. She was in a wheelchair. Uh, she was completely dependent on others for her care. And I was sitting with her, and I asked her, hey, how are you doing? And we were kind of talking about faith, and I'm like, are you, are you mad at God? I didn't ask it that directly. I, I was something like, how are you processing this with the Lord? I don't remember what I said. But, but in my mind, I'm like, are you really mad at God right now? And I'm thinking, of course she is, right? That's obvious. Uh, I expected her to just kind of unload and say, I'm so confused. Why is this happening to me? She didn't say any of that. All she said was, it's my time, Dan. It's my time. And I sat there for a, a few seconds, you know, trying to comprehend what she meant. And I, I looked over at her and I wanted to be, aren't you mad just a little bit? You know, she was completely stoic. Um, matter of fact, and in that split second, I realized, oh, I am more uncomfortable with her leaving than she is. And there's a part of me that wants to blame God and be at, uh, mad at him for allowing things like brain tumors, chronic illness, for taking our loved ones from us. Don't you care about us, Lord? And yet I also believe that this isn't the world God wanted or created. That the existence of death and suffering, that wasn't in God's plan. 
that the decline and deterioration of our physical bodies, which is, the Bible tells us, it's the result of humanity's constant, you know, we're trying to be independent from God. We're separated from God. It's, it's our sin and the brokenness of the creation that we've caused. But even when Jesus was here on earth, he didn't heal everyone. But you know what he did do? He made it possible for all people to enter his healing presence. And by establishing God's kingdom, he started the clock on death. Scripture tells us even death will be destroyed in the end. And that these bodies of ours, while they waste away now, that we're going to be given new resurrection bodies like his. That's our hope. That's what waits for us who put our faith in him. And so what do you want from me? It's so easy to just stiff-arm Jesus and to throw rocks and say, look at all the suffering out there. Why aren't you doing more about it? And I think Jesus looks back and he's like, no, I'm asking you. What do you want from me? Well, I need to be healed as well. I, I, I want that, Jesus. Have mercy on me. And even my sister knew that. She knew that her time here was nearing the end and that her time with the Lord would continue on forever. She had made peace with God. Her faith in Christ meant that she had hope for a new resurrection body at Christ's return. She knew that she would be with God forever and that eventually this world and his people would be redeemed and restored fully. That's the gospel. The good news that we can that Jesus proclaims, that we proclaim. It's the good news that we take faith. We can have faith. We don't need all the answers. We don't need to know why in every situation, but just to trust that God has our best interests in mind, and there is hope. And so, um, like I said at the beginning, there's all these questions we have, and whatever answer someone puts to it is always going to feel complete or somehow minimize the suffering of someone else. So you don't have to have the answer. But what we have to have is just a basic faith that Jesus died for me and that there is a hope of redemption and restoration of creation and of our bodies coming and that we don't have to just wait for that, that there is an experience of newfound life that we can have in Jesus because his spirit dwells inside of me. I can taste that even now as I age and my body falls apart. That's the hope and the joy that we have in him. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it's what we wait for. It's what we're reminded for during Easter or during the Lenten season as we you know, remember that we are dust and that we repent and come back to you, Lord. It's this hope of salvation. It's the forgiveness that we experience in you, the mercy and the grace that you extend to us, Lord, and someday the resurrection that we will experience. We are so grateful, Lord, for those of our loved ones or even people we barely know 
that are suffering right now as we, as we, as we think, um, we pray that you would heal them, that you would restore their health, Lord, that you would give them many, many more days on this earth. And Lord, as we pray those and we wait, help us to do so with courage. Help us to remember that you are with us and help us to see you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.